Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. You might have seen the devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria and thought, well, buildings falling like that can't happen here. We have better building codes. We have better construction. But experts say there are lessons we can learn. And later, the next time you're stranded at SFO, you might want to skip the line at Pete's and Klein's Deli and check out the airport's very own museum. Ethan Alkine will be talking to its director. But first, it's been three years since the COVID pandemic hit the Bay Area. During that time, here on State of the Bay, we pulled in two experts who were part of our COVID dream team. That was Erin Alday. She's a health reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle. And Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He's an infectious disease specialist and professor at UCSF School of Medicine. Nearly every week during the pandemic, Aaron and Peter gave us the latest information and kept us apprised of developments. So now on this anniversary and as San Francisco lifts its public health emergency order, I am pleased to welcome them both back to State of the Bay. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Hi, Peter. Hello, hello. Hey, you know, a lot of us remember where we were exactly when we first heard that the Bay Area was going to go down to, was going to go under quarantine. And so I'm just curious, Erin, where were you? So I was, um, actually I was home uh, asleep when I got a text <laughs> message from somebody with the uh, the Department of Public Health in San Francisco giving me, kind of tipping me off, giving me a heads up because they wanted me to be able to, or the Chronicle to be able to publish mm. a story about the, the shelter in place order something that would kind of reassure people would have all the details. I think they thought they were worried that if they just went out and announced shelter in place, people were going to kind of freak out and they wanted to kind of have the context in there right out of the gate. So they called me, I think around six or six 30 in the morning. And Mm. then I was just go from that point on. Were were you freaked out when you heard about it? I don't know that I was free. I mean, I was definitely in shock. Mm. I was definitely, it was like a very like your out of body experience almost. Um, So I don't remember being freaked out. I just, it was really, really hard to wrap my head around the fact that we were there, even though we had seen it heading in that direction for, for weeks. Mm-hmm. Peter, what about you? What When you first heard that the Bay Area was going to go into quarantine, where were you and what was your reaction? I was in the hospital um, and I had been planning to meet a friend for coffee. And all of a sudden the announcement came out. Everything was shut down. Mm-hmm. We had been preparing about a month or so in the hospital setting. We were doing all these trainings with um, poppers, which are these sort of spaceman suits uh, in case we ran out of masks because we knew we may not have enough masks then. Mm. Um, And I think that uh, we had already taken care of the first two patients in California, at least the first patient who was transferred in um, uh, from another county. And so we were really trying to get together all of the clinical protocols. We were looking at the evidence uh, we were educating ourselves, um, and little did I know that uh, it would be three years later before I was able to reflect on this. I mean, Peter, as somebody who is an infectious disease specialist, what what did it feel like that now COVID-19 was really putting a highlight, a, a, a searchlight practically, on your um, profession and your specialty? Well, it felt um, like, you know, personally, it felt like, the everything I trained for uh, for all those years and mm. decades even um, came to the front, um, you know, and I think for many of us, it felt like a mission. 
it felt like a calling uh, mm-hmm. and we were in in it. Uh, and I think that would probably reap havoc uh, on our friends and our family, um, you know, as we were sort of not really knowing what was day, what was night and every hour turned into another without that sense of time. Were you in the hospital 24-7? Well, if I wasn't in the hospital physically, I was there mentally because uh, I was being paged all the time. And um, we were really um, trying to build a plane as we flew it. And that was really unsettling in many ways. Yeah, I, I think we've forgotten this, but one of my memories from that time is the seven o'clock or I can't exact the exact time when people went out to say thank you to frontline workers. You know, this the clapping and the banging on the pots. Did that make a difference to you? It did. It made a huge difference. I think it was a morale booster for a lot of people. We were very fearful. Um, we didn't try to show that fear uh, when we talked to patients or community members. But every single person I knew was really afraid of not only getting sick themselves, and probably that was even the minor fear, was really bringing it home, bringing it home to parents, bringing it home to children, bringing it home to loved ones, uh, and 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 not um, wanting to feel part of spreading it to someone else and and to patients too. Mm -hmm. Aaron, it was such a fast moving story. It felt like every hour there was a different development, a different news piece to cover, in part because um, the White House had a different angle on COVID. For you, what was that like um, chasing down this story day to day? It was intense. I mean, it was probably for that first year or so, it was like the biggest breaking news story you know, that we'd ever covered most of us mm. only it was, it was relentless. Like the biggest break it, breaking news story that went on and on for, <laughs> you know, right. a year. Um, and, and I mean, it's still going on, but that first year, especially you're right. It was like hour to hour. And for me, especially it felt like, I felt like I was on a treadmill running really fast and I couldn't ever get off of it because mm. otherwise I would just fall hopelessly behind. Right. So I felt like I just could never kind of pause and take a break because I would never, I would never catch up again. So it was definitely, yeah, it was it, the, the pace of it was by far for me the hardest part of, of covering it because it was just so dynamic. And you're right, it was complicated by the the White House response and the the federal response and the state, you know, California doing its own thing, the counties doing their own thing, but also just the nature of a pandemic with a novel virus where you're just we were learning about it in real time, and I'd never had that experience before. But it was it was fascinating a lot of the time, but also just. Yeah, really, really intense. I, um, I'm just curious, you know, now that we're we're kind of reflecting here, what was a story, Aaron, that really stuck with you that, um, you know, you still think about today? Um, I mean, there's a lot of them, to be honest. One of the ones from early on, um, I had written a story when we were just a couple weeks into shelter in place, and I was talking to folks trying to imagine what what things would look like when we'd go back. Mm-hmm. And it was still, and it's funny because it was you know, by then we were already sheltering in place. We'd already kind of gone to these extreme levels, but now we were talking about, you know, how would we ever ride BART again? How would, you right. know, the, this idea that we could never, you know, it might be, we were, I think we were saying at the time it might be weeks or months before, you know, we were able to go to Warriors games mm. or you know, do these <laughs> things safely. And of course, you know, it ended up being a lot longer that in most cases, but I just remember it felt very like, you know, apocalyptic kind of, you know, mm. you almost hate using that word. It's a little extreme, but it was still really hard to kind of wrap my head around that. I remember kind of trying to describe to people 
what life might look like when we kind of were let out of our homes and this virus was still raging. Right. And how about you, Peter? What's a moment that has stayed with you all these years? I think there were three moments for me. The first was around just having something to give patients, and that was remdesivir. Mm. Of course, um, initially it was something that we were doing kind of blindly because we didn't have really uh, great clinical trial data, and that came out, so that was one. So I felt empowered when we can get it for patients because it was something active we can do, and so many people were doing so poorly. The second was really in December of 2020 when we started to roll out vaccines. And I just remember that first patient Mm. getting it in California, in the Bay Area. And that was such a moment of hope and and joy. And then the third was kind of a, the opposite of that was when we got reports of people getting chronic symptoms and long COVID. I think uh, that was really a wake up call for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to talk about the vaccine. I think... I mean, again, it's been a few years now, and I think we forget how extraordinary it was to have a vaccine for COVID-19 not so long after we had identified it. And I mean, just briefly, Peter, can you talk about the science of that and how that's just, I would, I don't want to use the word not normal, but it's just extraordinary to be able to find more or less a, a type of um, a vaccination for a fast mutating virus. Yes, I mean, it was really remarkable um, in many ways. I think we couldn't have even done this five years ago. Hmm. um, And many more people would have died potentially. I think this was just a lucky uh, meeting or alignment of the stars when the science was there to do, uh, you know, sequence the whole genome of uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus. When the, uh, the leap of faith was there that we can just cut and paste that code and uh, use the technology of mRNA to make it very quickly and expeditiously. Otherwise, we would have to wait probably a, another year or so. And then the the third was really people's willingness to um, to go and get it. You know, I think that um, you know it was you know we had had the technology for mRNA for about ten years or more, but uh, this was really the first uh, human vaccine that was used so widely. Mm-hmm. I just remember when my parents finally got it and I was able to take them to get their vaccination. I just felt such relief um, because they seemed so more vulnerable than anybody else in the population. I'm sure you have you both have similar stories of feeling relief to, to get vaccinated yourself and to have family members vaccinated. Aaron. Yeah, for sure. I had the same thought when my parents got vaccinated. I was very relieved. They live up in the in the mountain area of California, like in the foothills. And it was just a very different scene there. People weren't masking quite the same as they were in the Bay Area. And, you know, I knew my parents had to go out and they had to shop and stuff like that. And I just I just really, really was concerned for them. Um, but once they got vaccinated, and especially with the protection against severe illness, it almost it almost took my concern for them off the table. Like mm-hmm. I just felt like this huge burden lifted to feel that they were going to be safe. Mm-hmm. And then I do remember when I got my first shot and I was it was another kind of it was more surreal than anything. I did it at Bat Moscone Center and right. it was just so so bizarre to be in that that place and, and to it felt very like like a historic moment and I kind of had a lot of pride to be participating in it. Exactly, exactly. I, I mean you're talking about where you, where your parents live, um, Aaron, and were you surprised to see this public health emergency politicized even here in the Bay Area? I would say I actually thought it might be more politicized. I mean, mm. it's, 
it's it's awful. It's a shame. But given the state of politics in this country and in the state, um, you know, I think California actually just had a pretty even keeled response in those key in that key first year. Mm-hmm. I think there was, you know, a lot of kind of unity. And yes, like I said, there was there were a lot of differences and I felt less safe for my parents in a more rural county. But I think I, I had fears that it was going to be even worse, I think, in mm-hmm. California mm-hmm. Um, and that there'd be even more pushback. So I was actually a little bit relieved at how forceful um, the state was and, and really kind of pushing hard on that, that public health defense, especially in that first year. Well, you know, people get their news from so many sources now. And I, I'm just curious, Aaron, how that affected the reporting during the pandemic um, and what were the conversations like within the Chronicle about presenting information about the virus, the vaccination and trying to counter any misinformation that's out there. I mean, maybe that's an ongoing conversation, but at that point it felt acute. Yeah, I think what I really struggled with is, you know, we're so used to challenging, you know, power at Mm -hmm. every kind of opportunity. That's that's what we do, right? You kind of have to question and say, okay, this thing, you know, if you're going to put out these blanket sort of orders, it's up to us to sort of challenge that and say, is it appropriate? But it felt very different through the pandemic because it was so life or death, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, these orders were coming down to save lives. Mm-hmm. And it didn't feel like there was quite as much space to sort of question that, you know, and I'm kind of hesitating talking about it. But I remember that being, you know, something that kind of became more of an issue as the pandemic kind of raged on is sort of how do you how do you kind of cover this in a way that really protects people's health? You know, even as you start questioning, you know, are there some aspects of this like around schools, right? Right. There were a lot of people that had disagreements on when we bring kids back to school, do we require masks in school? And you had very reasonable people that at certain points, you know, coming with, with very strong backgrounds coming from coming to different conclusions Mm -hmm. and that things got a little bit harder, I think in the second and third year of the pandemic, it was a little more straightforward in that first year. Yeah. I mean, I think we saw Ron DeSantis come here from Florida, the governor of Florida to talk about the Florida way of handling the pandemic. And that kind of brings me to another question, which is with, we're talking about the long-term impact of COVID on our economy and our mental health and, and kids learning, as you mentioned, Aaron, Peter, was there a policy from this period that with hindsight, you think we could have reconsidered? considered or if we ever have to encounter this again that we should should redo yes i think the the bottleneck and led to a lot of uh trauma and people getting sick to me was diagnostics Mm. i think at the beginning uh the u.s said to the who hey you know thanks for your offer of that test you already have validated we're gonna do our own thanks very much Mm -hmm. and that our, being on our own led to a delay of several several months uh, when people didn't know they were infected and therefore they were spreading COVID unknowingly to a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. We were flying by the seat of our pants. We were using like clinical criterion to diagnose people. It was like saying, uh, we only have a few tests, so let's just check the people who are no-brainers for COVID. Like they have the chest x-ray and everything that looks like COVID. But you know, leave out the vast majority of people in the community who are spreading it. It's like saying, I'm only going to check uh, people with PCP pneumonia for HIV, mm-hmm. but everybody else, you know, um, you know, good luck and just try to be safe. Wow. Well, wh- Peter, what's on your radar screen now? I mean, as an infectious disease specialist, what are your considerations when it comes to COVID? Well, I think uh, right now we're waiting in this uh, sort of weird state of limbo, not knowing what the virus will do. I think most of us think that 
you know, the population immunity is getting uh, better and better so that even if a crazy Pi or Rho Sigma variant comes up, uh, we would generally be much more protected than, say, three years ago, even one year ago. So that's one one issue, sort of the waiting game, waiting for the virus to become endemic. And endemic means that we can predict the rise and fall and maybe it'll be a winter virus, but we just don't know yet because we haven't had enough time. The second, of, of course, is just a number of people who are dying. You know, today it's about 538 people in the U.S. Mm. dying a day, California about 18 to 20. And that's way too much. And I'm hoping that that number gets better. And then the third, of course, is the whole, um, you know, humility that we continue to have, especially with chronic symptoms, long COVID, which will be the legacy of this virus. And with millions of people out, we don't even know how to treat it well. We don't have any therapeutics. We're in the kindergartner stage of trying to understand. Mm -hmm. And what about you, Aaron? COVID has taken so many lives and it's changed so many lives. How did it change your life? Uh, wow, it changed my life a lot. Um, I mean, for the moment, I'm not a health reporter anymore. I just, <laughs> I've never, I've never hit a, a burnout stage in my career, but I definitely hit a point where I just couldn't, I couldn't keep covering it. It was yeah. just too hard. It was just too exhausting. Um, so yeah, I mean, in in a way, COVID kind of, um, I, I, I try not to phrase it this way, but it kind of took away that that mm. part of my job for me because I just can't, I can't go there anymore or at mm-hmm. least for, for the moment mm-hmm. um so you know i'm i'm writing about new topics now um which is great it's exciting so i'm really happy to be doing that but it is it does feel a little bit like a sadness like something was kind of taken for me because i just mm. yeah burned myself into the ground <laughs> well i know that during that time talking to you both of you each week was such a a calming moment for not only me, but I think for our listeners, for my co-host, Ethan Elkind. And I really want to thank you for the service that you did to all of us, um, for us um, during that time. So thanks very much for both coming back today. Well, thanks so much. Well, and thank you, Peter. It's always been a delight talking to you. I, I know. I was so excited to have a reunion. Too bad we couldn't do it in person. I was I looking know. forward to some champagne. Well, I look forward to seeing who's going to play you in the movie, both of you. So <laughs> I think I watched Contagion too many times on loop in those first couple days. That was not a good thing. Um, and The Last of Us. Don't forget The Last of oh, Us. Oh, gosh. Like, just everybody needs to watch that not before bed. So um, that was Peter, Dr. Peter Chen Hong. He's an infectious disease specialist and professor at the UCSF School of Medicine. And Aaron Alday, a health reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Together, the two of them were our State of the Bay COVID dream team. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Coming up, coming up next on State of the Bay, we're going from one disaster to the next. What can earthquakes in Turkey and Syria teach us here in the Bay Area about how to prepare for a major quake? That's right after the break. If you lived in California for any length of time, whether it's 10 days, 10 months, 10 years and beyond, you know that earthquakes are a fact of life. Our state is riven by the San Andreas Fault and a series of smaller faults like the Hayward that runs under Berkeley. Nearly 35 years ago, the region experienced a 6.9 magnitude earthquake which broke the Bay Bridge, pancake freeways, and brought San Francisco's Marina District to its knees. 
Looking at images from the earthquakes in Syria and Turkey with their flattened buildings and extraordinarily extraordinary loss of life, 47,000 people as of today, we might think, well, that can't happen here. We have better building codes and stronger buildings and better prep. But experts say we shouldn't be too sure about that, and there are lessons to learn. To talk about those lessons, I'm joined by Sarah Atkinson. She's the Earthquake Resiliency Policy Manager at SPUR, a nonprofit that looks at urban problems facing the Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay, Sarah. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. We're also joined by Brandon Tom. He's this SF Neighborhood Emergency Response Team Coordinator. That's called NERT, N-E-R-T. Welcome to State of the Bay, Brandon. Hi. Thank you. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, Sarah, I wanted to start with you. Looking at the images from Turkey and Syria, is it possible that what happened there could happen here in the Bay Area? And if so, why or why not? Yeah, thanks, Grace. That's a really good question. Obviously, kind of the question of the moment. I think that there's two parts to this question. The first is, can we have an earthquake of 7.8 magnitude and can we have a an aftershock of a 7.5 magnitude? Absolutely. That can absolutely happen here. The harder question to answer is, um, you know, I think the part that you're really getting at is, can we see the kind of destruction that has been seen in Turkey and Syria And that is much harder to figure out. But I I think the takeaway is we should think that it could happen here. And by thinking that it could happen here, we can push ourselves to do more in preparing for earthquakes like like the ones that happened in Turkey and Syria. Well, in particular, Sarah, are there types of buildings that are more vulnerable to a type of uh, the quake that hit in Syria and Turkey, um, you know, in terms of construction or construction material? Yes, definitely. Uh, Two of the types that we have seen collapse in uh, Turkey are, one of them is brittle concrete buildings. So buildings that were built uh, around World War II that basically didn't have uh, enough structural reinforcement within the columns of the buildings. Mm -hmm. And then the other type is soft story, uh, multifamily apartment buildings. And these buildings are usually two or more stories built over a ground floor of retail or uh, parking garage that don't have many interior walls. And that leads to a vulnerability in the structure. So when shaking happens, they can collapse. And we have a lot of these buildings in the Bay Area. Um, Unfortunately, we don't really know the extent of exactly how many of these buildings we have. San Francisco has an ordinance around soft story buildings. They are currently working on an ordinance for brittle concrete buildings. Uh, But for example, in San Francisco, so far they've retrofitted 4,900 soft story buildings and they have 10% of their program left. So that's just in San Francisco. In Oakland, there's uh, there was over a thousand buildings. I think about Um, I'm forgetting the number of buildings that have been retrofitted so far, but about 700 units have been retrofitted. Uh, So yeah, definitely that we have the same vulnerabilities as, as the buildings that collapsed in, Mm -hmm. in these earthquakes. Well, Brandon Tom, you're the coordinator of the San Francisco Neighborhood Emergency Response Program, NERT. And I see you, you're in the studio and you're nodding your head. I I mean, what do you, what do you think about the building issues in the city and beyond? I totally agree. Um, Another one that we teach about is the unreinforced masonry buildings that also have collapsed, which did collapse on 19, in 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bluxom Street it killed, ended up killing eight people. 
Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So, yes. I remember that. I was here for that earthquake. Yeah. And when you say unreinforced masonry, you just mean brick buildings that aren't reinforced. Is that what you're talking about? That is correct. Yeah. And then the, the just, is it this, the brick wall just comes tumbling down or? Yeah, there's nothing holding it together. And uh-huh. with enough shaking force, they end up falling. This, this is a happy episode of State of the Bay, <laughs> let me say. Um, and I want to have the listeners come in because we have two experts here. And if you have any questions about earthquake preparedness, now is your moment to call in because we have the guy who's in charge of emergency response for the neighborhoods. Um, so this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. And I'm Grace Wan. We're talking about earthquakes and how to prepare for them. What have you done to get yourself prepared for an earthquake? And have you strengthened your home at all? Join us by calling. 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Or you can find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. Sarah, I wanted to go back to you. I mean, we have a great building code in San Francisco. Everybody knows we're going to have an earthquake. And I would, I would like to think that we have a pretty good enforcement of that building code. So you're saying that we're trying to retrofit these homes. It's been almost 35 years since the 1989 earthquake. Why is it why are why hasn't that been done already? Yeah, um that's a good question. I think uh there's many challenges in getting these buildings retrofitted. Um you know, these are all owned by individual private owners, so getting them to do something that's voluntary that's going to cost them money is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the pathway is really getting cities to inventory these buildings, understand their risk, and then pass uh, seismic retrofit ordinances mandating that these buildings are retrofitted. And as I said, San Francisco has one of these. Oakland has a retrofit ordinance for soft storage buildings. So does Berkeley. Um, San Jose is currently in the process of creating a, this kind of ordinance, um, but it's it's very hard because there is not a lot of funding available to support jurisdictions in this process. There is some funding from FEMA that can be uh, dedicated towards these efforts. There's also some work at the state level. There was a soft story retrofit program that was supposed to be funded for $250 million this oh. year, but it was left out of the governor's draft budget in January. Oh. And that has really been central to the advocacy work that I've been doing right now to try to get that funding back into this year's budget. And uh, Assembly Member Rodriguez recently uh, put forth emergency legislation to protect this funding and then hopefully have more funding for mm-hmm. these types of retrofit programs. Well, do you have any sense of how much it costs to fix a soft story or to, um, you know, tie your foundation in to your house, Sarah? Um, that is a difficult question because it really varies. Mm-hmm. And um, because these are older buildings, sometimes mm-hmm. when a retrofit is happening, uh owners realize that the foundation needs to be replaced um that can and then that can add costs to a retrofit mm-hmm. um so yeah i i hesitate to give a number but i will say that retrofitting soft story buildings and retrofitting uh you know single family homes is far cheaper than replacing those buildings after an earthquake happens and those buildings are destroyed and it's it's better for you know the recovery time of our economy it's it will reduce loss of life. So I think that there's a lot of uh, benefits that come along with putting the funding, you know, 
putting the funding ahead of time. Yeah. Well, you mentioned FEMA. Is there is there actually money from FEMA that a person could apply for to retrofit uh, their house? Yeah, it's it's not funding that a person could apply for, for example, as like a grant to retrofit their home, but mm-hmm. cities can apply for hazard mitigation grant funding. Ah, got it. Um, and that funding comes after an emergency in the state. And, you know, we've had a lot of emergencies over the last few years, so that funding has been a, a bit more consistent, but it's not uh, as reliable for earthquake efforts. Mm-hmm. Well, another um, issue that's come up in, in these conversations is that our building codes are built so that we survive, that the building will largely stay up um, and not kill us. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the building's safe to live in or work in again, this idea of a functional recovery standard. Um, what do you know about that, Sarah? And what, what is California doing to get to a higher standard? Yeah, this is a really important issue. There has been legislation put put forth over the last few years to try to get the California Building Code to a higher seismic standard, to what we call a functional recovery standard, so that people can then stay, you know, shelter in place and stay in their buildings and don't have to be relocated. Um, those efforts have uh, unfortunately died every time that they have gotten pretty far through the legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, this is something that like we need to be pushing on the governor for. We need to be seeing this in our building code. Um, and, you know, if if these buildings aren't places that people can continue to live in, that adds to our housing crisis, which obviously is um, a major problem in our region and in the state. Right. It's, I mean, we already don't have enough housing. So if after an earthquake places are not habitable, then that is a big problem. So I have a question from a listener. Um, this person asks, if I'm a renter, how can I figure out if my building is earthquake safe and has been updated? Um, Brandon or Sarah? Sarah, you want to start? Yeah. Sure. Um I think it is uh, your right as a tenant to ask, uh, you know, your landlord whether or not your building has been retrofitted. Um, there are some database databases through, for example, San Francisco, where you can look up your address and see if it's a specific uh, type of uh, at-risk building, for example, soft story, but that doesn't cover all of the at-risk buildings. So, um, yeah, you, you'd kind of have to go direct to the source. Mm-hmm. So you'd ask, ask, you'd suggest asking the landlord. Well, Brandon, if you're um, a renter or a tenant, you know, is there anything particular that you would look out for in terms of earthquake preparedness? Yeah, so we would look for clues. Um, so we would look for uh, signs that the foundation has been bolted. So you would look for foundation bolts. You would look for plywood sheathing in the soft story to make sure that there's no racking in that story. Uh-huh. So those are clues that uh, retrofit has occurred. What's what's plywood? What's racking in plywood sheathing? So uh, plywood sheathing is what would uh, help uh, the soft story from uh-huh. shaking back and forth. Ah, okay. Yeah. And what's racking? That's that's the, the, the going the, back and forth. That's the mo- that's what ha- would happen during the back and forth motion where it would stay on one side or the other. Okay, right. I wish people were in the studio to watch the hand motions that go with this. It's very <laughs> instructive. <laughs> Um, well, that's good advice to look to see if the foundation has been bolted in to see if there's plywood sheathing in the building. So you kind of have a sense of whether this building has been brought up to earthquake standards. Um, and, you know, ta- going back to the 
kind of the state of this. We're ta- we're talking about buildings, but are, is there other infrastructure, infrastructure, Sarah, that you at Spur are thinking about to make sure it's earthquake safe, like the freeways or, you know, bridges and things like that? Yeah, that hasn't been central to my work at the moment. Mm -hmm. I've really been focused on housing and housing safety. But, uh, you know, after the 1989 earthquake, that was really a central focus of recovery efforts in in retrofitting highways and roads and bridges. So, and, and there's further efforts too. For example, San Francisco has a lifelines council, which comes together with all the utilities and make sure that everyone is kind of up to date on their retrofits. Mm-hmm. Um, another issue that comes up in San Francisco is that you know, a lot of the city is built, built on landfill. I mean, the marina is mostly landfill. Parts of Mission Bay are landfill. I mean, I think those are called scarily liquefaction zones. Are there any particular concerns about buildings in those areas, Sarah? Are they built even stronger because everybody knows about the um, the, the state of the soil there? Um, you know that that's a difficult question to answer, and I think it's building by building. Mm-hmm. I in you know there are techniques that you can use, for example, improving the soil through compaction and making sure that you know it's it's unlikely to move and cause foundation issues of buildings. But that's really hard when there's a lot of individual property owners and buildings that are already built. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in uh, Mission Bay, where there has been a lot of new development, those techniques have been implemented, but. It's it's kind of a patchwork of implementation across other developments. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned um, something called a tall building study. Is that um, a, 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 a resource that listeners can use to understand, um, you know, the state of the buildings that they might be working or living in? Sarah? Yeah, I, I think it's a good thing to look at. Um, it doesn't have... You know, you can't see the individual addresses or the individual vulnerabilities of buildings, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's still a good resource. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit, Brandon, about NERT um, and tell me exactly why was it started and who's in charge of it? I mean, I think the fire department. Yeah. So the NERT program, it's uh, spawned from 1989 earthquake. Mm -hmm. Uh, So as you have seen probably in news uh, reels, the marina was hit hard. Yeah. Uh, there was a big fire there, and regular residents were there to help. Mm-hmm. And that spawned uh, the citizens of marina. There was a good group of 24 marina residents who asked the fire department at that time uh, for some uh, real training so that oh. they could help. And so that spawned the NERT program. So uh-huh. the first NERT class graduated in September of 1990, a year later. Okay. And since then, since to now, we've trained over 35,000 residents. Wow. Yes. What's NERT training look like? Uh, so it's a 20-hour course. Uh, covers six different sessions. Uh, and it goes over uh, preparedness, um, disaster mitigation, uh, learning about um your utilities, uh, disaster medicine, a um, little bit about what we call ICS, which is a way to uh, organize yourself, and then we do a hands-on training. Wow. And is is this all done online or is it done in person now? Uh, so we 
are one of the only programs that we want to do everything in person because mm-hmm. I think that's the best way you can learn. Yeah, right. So, and how do I sign up for something like this? Uh, everything is on our website uh, through San Francisco uh, SFFD uh, website, and you click on the NERT link, and everything is there. Okay. Well, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm your host, Grace Wan. We're talking about preparing for earthquakes and issues that we should be aware of as citizens of the Bay Area. What have you done to prepare yourself for an earthquake? What's in your go bag? And have you strengthened your home at all? Is Is your home bolted into the foundation? Do you have questions about that? You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at org, Or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. So, Brandon, I think, you know, we, we here in the Bay Area, we've lived through wildfires. We're living through some big, pretty big storms. And I think one thing we're learning is that while we have this awesome fire department, which you are a member of, you know, there's limited resources. When everybody's, you know, suffering from the same thing, right. we're all going to have to maybe help ourselves. Right. And it, given that, what do you think are some of the most useful things we can do to prepare ourselves for disaster? Well, just speaking about uh the number of people that we have. So just on any daily given basis, the city has about 850,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the San Francisco Fire Department, we only have 313 uh, people to respond in an emergency. <laughs> Do you I, think 313 people can respond to 850,000 people? I think that must be the most startling statistic that we've heard on a State of the Bay. There are 313 firefighters for 850,000 people. Right. Yeah, I think the answer is probably not. Probably Brandon. not, yes. yes. So, are you understaffed or are you? is that the normal number? That is our daily staffing. Okay. Uh, it has not changed in the 20-something years I've been in the fire department. Okay, all right. Um, but the population has grown. Sure. Um, what we need is people to empower people to help themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's the most important thing uh, to be prepared. Yeah. And that's because if you're prepared, that's just one less person that we, as a fire department and as a city, has to take care of. Yeah. So, and what does preparation look like in your mind? I would suggest that you start with the basics of a, a go bag or a kit. Mm-hmm. And stock it with things that you will need to survive for 72 hours. And what would that be? Uh, So uh, an example is have enough water. So we recommend one gallon of water per person per day. So that's a lot of water. If you have a four-person household, that's Mm -hmm. a lot of water to store. Mm -hmm. But that's what we recommend. Well, I once read in a book, Mm -hmm. you can correct me if this is wrong, that, you know, when the earthquake hits or whatever, you should plug up your bathtub and run some water so you can have some water. Does that make sense? That makes sense. It does make sense. But there are other sources. Uh, there's, uh, you know, ice cubes in your fridge. That There's your water heater that probably okay. is no longer uh, going to be heating water, but you can, uh-huh. that's a source of water. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I have large bottles, plastic bottles of crystal geyser, but um, is that going to – and I need to have one gallon – for each person in my family, for each day. For each day. That is a lot of water. It's a lot of water. Yeah. What's the next thing I should have? Second thing you need, food. Mm-hmm. Something that, you know, you will actually eat. People yeah. go out and say, you know, they'll buy MREs or camping supplied foods that are, yeah. you know, prepackaged. But make sure you try them out. Make sure you <laughs> like them before you actually buy them because you may not eat them. And again, those things take water. 
So you're going to ah, need more water. Good point. Yes. Good point. We'll have a, a an email here. A listener says, I lived here during the 1989 quake, and we didn't have electricity for a while, just gas. We had water, so there was no problem with that. But people really should be prepared. I was stranded in the city and could not get over the Bay Bridge. I spent the night with friends of friends because I could not get home. So that's kind of what you're talking about, right, Brandon? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're hoping that neighbors do that. For uh-huh. each other, yeah. That if you don't have a place to go because you're you don't have uh, electricity, you don't have running water, that a neighbor can help you out. Right, right. And I'm sure we have listeners out there who lived through the 1989 earthquake. So if you want to call in and tell us your story, it's eight six six seven nine eight talk. That's eight six six seven nine eight eight two five five. Or email is state of the bay at kalw dot org. Um, Sarah, I understand that you joined NERT or you did NERT training. Yes, I did. I finished a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and how was that for you? It was great. Uh, The instructors were amazing, and I feel far more prepared. You know, being in this job, I really wanted to be able to be supportive of my community in the event of an emergency, and I feel like I can do that. What What aspect of it did you find surprising because I'm sure in your job, you're the earthquake resiliency manager for SPUR. You must know a lot, but was there anything about that training that you thought, oh, I didn't know that? Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of it was just like getting the tools to kind of know what to do in, in an emergency situation. I think everyone, there's a, there's the potential to kind of just like pause or like not not know what to do, not know how to act. And I think this just gave me kind of like, okay, I like go to a site and I meet with other people and we create teams and we, there's kind of a system for how you go about, um, you know, supporting people in the event of a disaster. And I think that really creates momentum for people to actually support, support the community. Mm -hmm. Well, in the event of an emergency, how will we know who the NERT people are, Brandon? So upon graduation, uh, we give out some really bright green helmet and vests. <laughs> that will, and you also get an official government ID, a NERT ID. Okay. And that will identify yourself as a NERT volunteer. Oh, okay. People yeah. out there, listeners, if you do NERT, you get swag. <laughs> I mean, Brandon is telling us you get a helmet and a vest, bright green. Hopefully that is your color. Um, we have a listener on the line, Bill from Daly City. Welcome to State of the Bay, and thanks for calling in. Thank you very much. Uh, I have a large, um, you know, like Culligan Man type water bottles, uh, and I'm wondering, I've had them for many years, and I'm wondering if they expire. It's just plain water. Mm -hmm. Brandon. So I don't know for sure, but I do know that plastic does uh, deteriorate over time. So I would, I recommend that you rotate plastic water bottles, uh, get rid of them every two years or so. And Brandon, I mean, this is Grace, the host. I'm not sure. I mean, uh, Bill, I'm not sure if this is going to help you, but we had bottles of water for about three years and I tasted one and I thought that tastes not that good. So I wondered wondered if I could boil it, but I I mean, I didn't want to take the risk. So I watered the plants with it. So Um, but good advice from Brandon. Make sure you change out your water supply um, every. Is it two years? I would say every year. Every year, every year. So we're in a drought still, despite all the rain. So the water will go to good use. So there's no no problem there. Um, So I have to ask you, since you're a professional, Brendan, what is in your go bag? I mean, not MREs. What kind of food do you have? 
Uh, so protein bars. Okay. Uh, th- those are simple, easy. Uh, you don't have anything that's readily cook, um, e- easy to cook. Um, but you know those things are out there. But mm-hmm. they're just they're high in sodium. So that's why I avoid like chilies or soups or anything like that. Oh, yes. don't have the canned soup because yes. it's too salty. It's very salty. So, Brandon, I mean, I have probably two cases of Amy's kitchen canned soup. I'm really feeling worried about that now. Do you, what? I mean, I can't. I shouldn't have MREs. I shouldn't have salty soups. I mean, I'm really stuck. I got an emergency bag, and it was filled with MREs. So, any other options out there, Sarah? Do you have any thoughts? I have a lot of beans in my go bag. Ah, so. <laughs> smart, smart. Canned beans or um, dried beans? Yeah, canned beans, canned definitely. Beans. I, yeah. I also have some mac and cheese, although who knows if I'll be able to actually make it. Yeah, because of the water situation, <laughs> right? Um, so beyond the food aspects, what else? I mean, you can get these prepackaged um, emergency bags, and I actually went ripped one open uh, not too long ago just because it was old, and I realized, oh, gosh, my kids wouldn't eat a lot of the stuff in here, and I don't know. I, I, I bought some life straws. Is that a good idea? Yeah, anything that you uh-huh. think would be helpful in an emergency would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, well, what about... What what are other things that one should be thinking about? I mean, nobody's going to come. I guess learning to turn off your gas. Uh, well, just go back to the go kit. Uh, yes. Make sure you have medication on hand. Ah, medication true. is important um, because many people can't live, you know, weeks without it. Uh, so medication is important. Uh, the other thing that I recommend that people don't think about is um, your important documents. Uh, just in case you, you know, have it. Have it somewhere where you can available to you so that you have access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that people don't think about too often is small bills for actually buying stuff. Because yeah. if you go to the corner store and you have a $20 bill and you buy a, you know, a bottle of water – I don't think they're going to give you any change. So Yeah, I think that is very true. <laughs> so um, we have another caller, Philip from Oakland. Welcome to State of the Bay. Thanks for calling in. Oh, hi. Thanks so much. Well, I've been listening. And, and you know, I I just will add to the water thing. First of all, I don't think you guys are thinking big enough. And I and I <laughs> do, you know, with respect. Yeah. I think that everybody needs to look at buying big containers and change that out every year. Literally, I think every my, my neighbor tells me that he thinks we can use the creek water next to us. <laughs> it's going to be full of sewage. There's not going to be any water. And so uh, I have a 250-gallon container. Mm. Uh, you know, your water heater is 50 gallons. You need to shut that off immediately after an earthquake. Turn off your water supply from the street. Check all, you know. But that, but you need to buy, and if you think about bottled water, it costs a lot of money, really. Right. And a big, large container costs a lot up front, but then you can store a lot of water. And I think that it's something we all need to think about because we live in a very dry area and there really isn't very much water around. So anyway, just my two cents. Well, Philip, I have to say, Brandon here in the studio is nodding his head, especially that comment about creek water having sewage in it. I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, so as we come to the... we're closing up of the hour, I mean, I'm realizing I need a go bag. It needs to have good documents. It needs to have medicine and also probably for me and my pet, right? So um, let's talk a little bit. A lot of people in this town have um, dogs and cats. What should we th- be thinking about in terms of our pets, Brandon? 
number one thing is make sure you have a crate. Uh, If we have shelters, Mm -hmm. they will not allow you your pet in there without a crate. That is a really good point because I no longer have a crate for my dog. (laughs) Some sort of pet carrier. A pet carrier for your dog. I hope everybody's listening and taking notes. Um, Sarah, is anything that you'd want to add in terms of people getting prepared, not just for your go bag, but just generally as a resiliency manager for Spur? Yeah, I, I think an important part of the preparedness aspect is that not everyone has the resources to, you know, prepare. For example, Philip just mentioned that buying these large jugs of water is a, is a big upfront cost. And if you have the resources to prepare, you actually are kind of helping other people who don't have the resources to prepare because you can share those resources with your community members. You also are someone that doesn't have to, for example, get in line for um, the city resources when they are passed out. And that reduces kind of the the stress on city services, which, you know, the NERP program is trying to uh, deal with this issue for sure. And I think just thinking about preparing yourself as like an equity issue as well. Well, all of this has been great advice and really food for thought for us as we um, prepare, hopefully not for a disaster anytime soon, but, you know, we need to be prepared. I want to thank the both of you for being on. We were talking to Brandon Tom. He's the NERC coordinator for San Francisco and Sarah Atkinson. She's the Earthquake Resiliency Program uh, for Spur, manager for Spur. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Coming up after the break, Ethan Alkine will be talking about San Francisco's Airport Museum. When you have a long layover, definitely check it out. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Hey, hey, travelers. The next time you find yourself wandering through crowds at SFO as you search for your terminal with luggage in tow, lift your head up and look around and you may just notice something interesting. A Chinese vase, a costume from the San Francisco Ballet, a photograph of an elderly trans couple, an airplane propeller from 1918. Hmm. What do these things have in common? They are all objects and art that are part of the San Francisco Airport Museum. There's an amazing 25 sites scattered through the terminals of the airport displaying everything from Zimbabwe stone sculptures and TWA China sets to a history lesson on Harvey Milk. To give us more information about this wonder at the San Francisco airport, let's talk to Tim O'Brien, the director of the museum. Tim, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, Tim, the origin of this museum is rather unique. I mean, an airport's not the place you think of where you're going to see any kind of art display or memorial to Harvey Milk. I mean, how did this SFO airport museum get started? Well, I think we can really attribute it to one woman, Elsa Cameron, who's a brilliant curator from the De Young Museum. And she really launched the program out here largely with an exhibition that fell through that was going to be at the, the Palace of the Legion of Honor. And uh, we ended up hosting it here at the airport. This was an exhibition on art glass from the Corning Museum in New York that, that went on to travel to New York, D.C., Paris, and elsewhere. So a real landmark exhibition that put us on the map and put us squarely on the road to what we do so well here, which is exhibitions on material culture. So you all are the only accredited museum in an airport. Is that correct? We are indeed. Yeah. 
We, re we received accreditation in 1999 and have been since reaccredited. And it really helps us because as you noted earlier, you know, when people think of airports, they don't think of museums necessarily, but we still run into potential exhibition partners and, and donors who may not be entirely comfortable with loaning to a museum that's located in an airport. And, and certainly that accreditation helps. It indicates that we've got a full and professional staff that manages all aspects of museum work. Since there are literally people coming from all over the world walking through this museum, how does this shape the types of exhibits that the museum showcases? Yes, it does influence. I mean, we're mindful that we serve a relatively captive audience. Um, they come from literally all cultural backgrounds and sensibilities. So, so as such, we certainly steer clear from advocacy and subjects that court controversy. But we really don't find that limiting in any way. Our mission is clear, but the scope is as broad as the world itself. We delight, engage, and inspire a global audience. We program on a great variety of subjects, pretty much any subject that we find curious or curious about ourselves. Do you all have categories for the exhibits that you have? Well, there's categories to the program out here. People will know us by one of three aspects of the program. One is be the public art that's on exhibit all around us, uh, 150 artworks belonging to the San Francisco Arts Commission Airport Collection. And these are permanently installed sculpture and installations and paintings. And a lot of folks will know us from that aspect of programming. Many others know us from the rotating exhibitions that are on display throughout the terminals and remotely located galleries. Exhibitions on subjects as far ranging as history of the pinball machine to ancient Chinese jades. And then still others will know us from our aviation collection, which is both online and also housed in our aviation museum and library, which is located in the International Terminal. I want to ask you about the aviation section, interestingly, because I know there was a Concorde exhibition. And as a child of the 80s, what I remember about the Concorde is, if you remember Live Aid, you may be younger than that, but Phil Collins was a performer in London in Live Aid and then caught the Concorde to fly to Philadelphia to perform during the same program. So I know about that plane. What was that exhibit like? I mean, it was what, the sleekest, fastest machine on the planet at one point or still is? It really was. And I'm, and I'm not embarrassed to say I was, I, I remember it as well, Fred. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a new level of, of air travel and quite luxurious and quite glamorous. And um, it lasted right up till 2003. So we have got an exhibit that features a number of models and marketing material and flight attendant uniforms and really kind of showcasing what it was like to travel on, on the Concorde. Well, I hope to be able to fly on that one. One of my favorite exhibits that I actually saw was the Harvey Milk exhibit. Tell us about that. Well, that was, is an absolute favorite of mine. In all the years I've, I've been here, uh, really felt the privilege and the responsibility to share material pertaining to the life of the man for whom the terminal was named. And um, as if you can imagine, an awesome responsibility that I shared with my co-curator, Kai Kammerer, and also one of Harvey's dear friends, photographer Danny Nicoletta who really helped guide us through the exhibition, helped us reach out to others to solicit more material. And I hope we did a good job in communicating the complete person that Harvey was. Uh, you know, the, when you see the images, you just see his smile shining through. You see his political acumen in these images. Um, just a remarkable human being. And who knows what would have happened had he not been assassinated on that, on that fateful day. And that exhibit is permanent, is it not? Well, we, we're not allowed to call anything permanent out here, okay? Right? As long as the walls last, we do consider it an ongoing exhibition. 
So, Tim, what is currently on display at the SFO Museum? Well, we, we've got quite a few subjects we're featuring right now, but a couple that stand out right now are the 90th anniversary of the San Francisco Ballet, which uh, really is one of the most influential companies in the world. And we're really excited to, to bring 18 costumes representing 13 ballets out to the International Terminal. This is an exhibition that is located prior to security out at the International Terminal Departures Lobby. So anyone can view it. You do not need a boarding pass to view it. And I definitely encourage people to learn the history of this company that we can all be very proud. It's right here in San Francisco. We've also got a, a photography exhibition up right now, unfortunately located past security checkpoints, but this is a remarkable photography essay that focuses on older transgender people. And it really brings visibility to people who are often unseen and really are the subject of frequently of some one-dimensional representation. So we have 18 portraits with their own stories and their own words alongside presented on the wall. And I have to say, this is an exhibition that resonates as strongly with our guests as any exhibition we've produced in the past. Very wonderful comments we've received um, from folks who feel very moved to see the stories and to see this visibility for themselves and for loved ones in their circle of friends, and it's really gratifying. Is this the work of one particular photographer or multiple photographers? Yes, one photographer, Jess Dugan, working with a social worker, Vanessa Febray, and um, they traveled around the country to get these stories, and they just did a beautiful job, and we're really proud to have that on exhibition. You can see this exhibition if you reach out to us at curator We're happy to accommodate visits uh, due to staffing concerns. We, we need to kind of get a critical mass of folks together before we host a visit, but we feel it's important to get people certainly to see this exhibition and we're happy to do so. Excellent. That's impressive. What kind of exhibits are coming up? I know that there's at least one that's uh, on African musical instruments. Yeah, we have, we have one uh, coming up on, on that subject. We also have an exhibition of art from incredible Berkeley-based fiber artist, K. Sekamachi, which I'm really excited about. We also have an exhibition coming up working with the National Park Service, um, the Rosie the Riveter Museum out in Richmond. And that's just a fascinating subject for how that period impacted the social dynamics, certainly the Bay Area of the country. And that should be a really, really meaningful exhibition. I'm excited to see that coming up on our calendar for early next year. So if I'm not in the mood to fly across the world, but I still want to check out what's at this museum, are there exhibits that I can see without buying a ticket to Beijing? Oh, absolutely. There's plenty to see here. We have 11 of our 14 object galleries are located prior to security checkpoints. And we can even get you to the ones that are post-security if you reach out to us via curator at flysfo.org. And for those who aren't flying or visiting the airport at all, we also have these exhibitions presented online on our website. For those of you who want to check out the SFO Museum, the world's only accredited airport museum, You can go to SFO or you can check them out online at sfomuseum.org. If you're headed out of town anytime soon, please look up from your ticket and look at these wonderful exhibits that are all along the airport. Tim, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. It's my pleasure as well. Thank you, Fred. Well, that's State of the Bay this week. For more information about this show and others, go to our page on klw.org. Tonight's show was produced by Jillian Emblad and yours truly. The show was engineered by David Kwan and D Minor. And he, D Minor, was our board operator. And I'm Grace Wan. Good night and thanks for listening. Your Call's One Planet series is coming up next.